But today we hear what maybe could be one of the most important sermons that you have ever heard. I really believe for me this is one of the most important sermons that I have ever given. I told our earlier service, God, God has changed some things in my mind because of what I learned preparing for this message this week. And if you're in the book of Revelation, I want to tell you how special this Sunday is just that we are in the book of Revelation because here's how the book of Revelation begins. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 1, the book of Revelation is the only book in the entire Bible that the Bible says, if you read this book you're going to be blessed. Now, I believe any time we study the Word of God, we have the opportunity to be blessed, but Revelation promises us if we read and study the book of Revelation, we'll be blessed. Here's what it says, Revelation 1, verses 1 through 3, then we'll jump to our main text. It says, the revelation, the word revelation means revealing. Literally, the word revelation in the Greek is apocalypse. It's the thought of a curtain on a stage that's closed, and a revealing is basically having the curtain pulled back. The book of Revelation looks in two directions spiritually. It looks at the future of the church, the long distant end of the world, future of the church in Revelation 4 through the end of the book of Revelation. But it looks past. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it looks at the past of the church. And literally in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, you have Jesus from the future speaking to the past talking about the church. So today the, the veil is going to be pulled back a little bit. We get a sneak peek on Jesus in the future from the book of Revelation. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's us, what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, that's the disciple John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. So I don't, I don't know if you realize it, but you just experienced a blessing and I just experienced a blessing. Three blessings are promised in Revelation 1-3. Anyone who reads the book of Revelation out loud is going to be blessed. So I just received a blessing because I just read it out loud. Anyone who hears the book of Revelation being read is going to be blessed. You have just heard the book of Revelation being blessed, uh, being read, so you are going to be blessed. But there's a third blessing for those who hear it and take it to heart. And that's a conditional blessing. Every one of us today has been blessed. I've been blessed by reading. You've been blessed by hearing. But there's this lingering blessing out there that's conditional that if you actually listen, pay attention, and take to heart what is said today from Revelation chapter 2 in just a minute, if you listen and take it to heart, you're going to have an additional blessing from God because of what you have learned. So with that said, I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. And I want you to hear what Jesus says from the future towards the past about his church. In Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3, Jesus speaks to seven real churches that existed about 1,900 years ago. But in doing so, Jesus also spoke to the church age. You say, what does that mean? Jesus spoke to churches that would exist between when he resurrected from the grave and when he would come back in his second coming. That's the church age. We're living in the church age. So in Revelation chapter 2, we see one of the only places in the Bible where Jesus from the future speaks to us today. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus was almost always talking about the future, not the past. In Revelation 4 through the end of the book of Revelation, Jesus is talking about the future, not the past. But in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, Jesus from the future is speaking backwards, and he has a message for the churches. And I believe Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7 holds one of the most transformational messages to Christians living in the church age that was ever written anywhere. Here's what it says. It says, to the angel, circle the word angel and just write pastor. 
It literally means messenger, but Jesus has a letter, a message for the pastor of the church in Ephesus. It says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. And he walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's Jesus. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent, which means change. And do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practice of the Nicolaitans. That was a group of people teaching bad theology, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I'll give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus from the future has a message for us today. And his message is very simple. As a matter of fact, the, the kind of the crux of his message is found in verse 5. And I want you to underline these words in verse 5 if you haven't already. Jesus says in verse 5, consider how far you have fallen. Repent. Here's what I want you to underline. And do the things you did at first. Do the things you did at first. Jesus is speaking from the future back to the past. And he said, you need to do church old school. You need to go back and do church the way you used to do church. Now, a lot of us in here, we, we don't have a lot of old-timers who, who think a lot about the old-school time in life, but do you ever look back and wish that some things were the way they used to be? I, at, at 37, had one of those experiences this week where I looked back and I thought, man, I, I, wish, I wish this was still old-school. Because I've got a little girl who's in the sixth grade, and if you have a daughter or a niece or a granddaughter or even a little neighbor girl um, who's in elementary school, middle school, or senior high, you'll, you'll realize like the popular shoes to wear these days are very old school. Um, ev- everyone is wearing the, the old Chuck Taylors again. So I went to get a pair of Chucks for my little sixth grader because she wanted the pair of shoes that everyone was wearing. And I grabbed the box and I took it up to the registrar uh, and, and they, they, pulled up, um, they pulled up the price and they were $60. Like, oh my gosh, $60 for a pair of shoes that, listen, when I was in the seventh grade, um, I, I bought my first, second, and third pair of Chuck Taylor tennis shoes. And, and here's why. In seventh grade basketball, our team wore black shoes, and there's me as a seventh grader in, in a near inappropriate picture. The shorts are so short there. Um, we could all go to jail just by looking at that. So you should probably take that off screen. But notice the black shoes. So we have black shoes. So the, the floor in our gym, I just want to make sure they took it off so y'all would pay attention. Um, the floor in, our, in the gym of our middle school was being redone. So for three weeks, we had to practice at the elementary school. And the elementary school like, didn't clean the gym floors. They, they were like concrete floors, dusty, dirty. They were just a mess. So our coach told us, don't wear your game shoes um, to practice at basketball. Go get some old shoes or wear some old shoes. So in the little town that I grew up in, we had a little farm and fleet that was stocked with chucks. And they were 10 bucks. So like me and all my teammates went and we just bought two or three pairs and we would wear them for a week of practice and then we would throw them away because they were $10. When I went up to the register this week and they said 60 bucks for this little pair of shoes, for the first time as an old timer, I thought, I remember when, right? Like 
gas was a quarter, and Chuck Taylors were like 10 bucks. Like $60 for a parachute? That's crazy. And I desired life the way it used to be. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus from the future looks at the church and he said, man, y'all have drifted from doing it the right way. You need to go back and you need to do it old school. And he's talking to the church at Ephesus. Now, here's what's cool about the church at Ephesus. If you haven't already, pull out your notes from your bulletins. You can follow along. There's an incredible amount of history in the Bible about the church at Ephesus. That's why this is, that's why there's so much biblical truth in Revelation chapter 2, because we know so much about the church at Ephesus. In Acts chapter 18, 19, and 20, we read the history of the ministry movement. We see how Paul went to the city, how he started a church, how the church blew up, the reaction of the city to the church. It's incredible. We'll study that in the next month going forward, the history of the movement. But we also see in number two, the history of the ministry leadership. Like the church at Ephesus had the greatest church leaders in the history of the world. Let me read you some names associated with the church at Ephesus because these were the people who helped this church get up off the ground. They are some of the most well-known names in the New Testament. Priscilla and Aquila led the launch team Bible studies before Paul showed up to start the church. Two of the greatest Bible teachers in the history of the world mentored the church at Ephesus. Apollos then came along and he taught the theology Sunday school class after he learned who Jesus was and he taught how the Old Testament proved the New Testament. The Apostle Paul came and founded the church at Ephesus after Priscilla and Aquila had built a crowd that was interested in Jesus. And it says every day for two years, the apostle Paul taught who Jesus was and established a church. And then he handed the church off to a young man named Timothy. As a matter of fact, Paul wrote two letters to Timothy, first and second Timothy, both of them. He was the church at, he was a pastor of the church at Ephesus. And Paul said, here's how to pastor this unbelievable church. After Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus was the apostle John like the one who hung out with Jesus, the youngest disciple, the last living disciple. And we know when Jesus was on the cross, he told his mom, you're going to live with John from now on. So most historians believe that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was a member at the church at Ephesus and probably died in Ephesus while a member there. So this generation, the church at Ephesus, was led for a generation by people who had personal contact with Jesus. They were led with, by people who could tell stories about Jesus, like real life Jesus, not Bible stories, but hey, I remember when, hey, remember this time when Mary could talk about him as a kid. Well, all those questions we have about Jesus from birth to 30, what did he do? They could ask those questions. All those questions we have about, okay, after Jesus fed the 5,000 and you took up the loaves and so like, what, 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 like, did you guys take any leftovers? You could ask John that. The apostle Paul, what was it like when God actually came and spoke to you? He could answer that question. There were people there who knew Jesus, like personally knew Jesus like we know each other. I think they would have kicked me out of this church at Ephesus actually because of my inquisitive nature. I grew up in, my teenage years were in the early to, to late 90s, and I grew up in one of the greatest eras of Saturday Night Live um, that has ever existed. Mike Myers, Dana Carvey, um, Adam Sandler, uh, and one of the greatest comedians of all time, Chris Farley. And there was a sketch when I was growing up that Chris Farley, they called the Chris Farley Show, where he would bring on people that like he was just overwhelmed um, with, and he would interview them, but he would never let them answer questions. That, like there was one skit where Farley brought on Bruce Willis um, to ask him about the Die Hard movies. And Bruce Willis is sitting next to him, and, and Farley would go into his personality in the sketch. He would say, um, you know, our, our guest today is Bruce Willis, and um, Bruce, um, you know, starred in Die Hard. And, and Bruce, remember, um, remember, remember that time in Die Hard when uh, you entered that building, and, and like there was a bunch of bad guys, but like you were, you were the only good guy, and, and none of the cops were there. And, and remember you went in, and like you blew everything up, and you rescued a person. You, 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 do you remember that? And Bruce is like, yeah. And Chris would go, 
man, that was awesome. And, and Bruce was like, okay. And he's like, and, and remember like in that, in that one die hard when, um, you know, when you were in the airplane and like you had to jump out of the airplane like w- without a parachute and Bruce would be like, that wasn't real. And he's like, yeah, I know, but, but, but remember in the movie when it happened and then like you landed in the ocean and then you saved the world? Like, remember when that happened? And Bruce was like, yeah. And he's like, man, man that was awesome. Um, and he, he would ask him these questions, but he would never let them answer. He would just kind of retell their stories. That would be me in Ephesus. Like if I was sitting in a Bible study in Ephesus that Mary was leaving, like I would raise my hand and say, Mary, Mary, Mary. And she'd say, yeah. And I'd say, Mary, remember, remember Mary that time that you told the story about Jesus when he was 12 and he went to the, t- went to the temple and, and you left him there and you had to go back and get him? And Mary would be like, yeah. And I'd be like, that, that was awesome. Like that was an awesome story. And, and John, John, Remember John when you guys were eating the Last Supper and, and Jesus said, like, somebody's going to betray me and no one knew who it was? So, like, you lean back against Jesus and I'm like, who is it? And John would be like, yeah, I remember that. And I'd be like, like, man, that was awesome. And Paul, Paul, remember Paul when you were going to Damascus? Remember the story about Damascus? The, when, when you were going to Damascus and the light hit you and, like, Jesus spoke to you and, and like, you couldn't see for a couple days and then you could see, you remember, remember that, Paul? And you'd be like, yeah. And they're like, man, that was, that was awesome. It, you know, and, like, I can just imagine someone saying, Christian, shut up. Like, just shut up. And I'd be like, okay, um, m- remember that time when Jesus told Peter to shut up and, and he called him Satan? And Jesus said, and like, that was awesome. Like, like, I would have been kicked out of this church because there were people who knew Jesus leading this church. Like, all the questions that we have about Jesus, they could answer. And that would have been so awesome, as Chris Farley would say. And when we look at the history of the leadership, we see a history of people who were directly connected to Jesus. We see the history of ministry advice in in the book of Ephesians. We see that the Apostle Paul wrote a book and said, here's how to really lean in spiritually. And the book of Ephesians was designed to help people in the church have a spiritual experience and impact that was both deep and wide. The book literally is divided right in half. The first three chapters are some of the greatest theology in all of the New Testament, how to truly know and understand who God is theologically. The last three chapters are some of the greatest chapters in the New Testament for kind of a how-to guide. If you're a Christian, live your life this way. Treat your wife this way. Treat your kids this way. Go to work this way. Serve the church this way. Like the book of Ephesians is perfectly divided between the depth of a Christian and the reach of the Christian influence in Christian church. It's why we're really excited about 2016. Every year we theme our church. This year's theme at our church was do something. We wanted to be a church as we entered a season of building a building that was shaped to do something. Next year we are shaping 2016 at our church as the year of deep and wide. Because we know as we get ready to move into a new phase of ministry in our community that every Christian in our church has to go deeper in their faith. We all need to understand how to connect to God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus in a new... we got to get deeper individually and corporately. But our ministry outreach has to be wider. We've got to do more for people in our community. So we're saying in 2016, we've got two goals. We want to go deep in our personal faith. We want to go wide in our ministry outreach. That's why I'm really excited to study the book of Ephesians with you next year. But the pinnacle of the book of Ephesians, like if, if chapters 1, 2, and 3 build, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6 come down... The pinnacle of the book is Paul praying that there'll be this mesh between theology and practical living that is all about Jesus. If you have your Bibles, go to Ephesians chapter 3 because I want to read you one of the greatest prayers that was ever written in the Bible. If you are a parent, you should pray this prayer for your kids. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you should pray it for the kids in your Sunday school class. If you're a small group leader, you should pray this for the people in your small group. If, if you're a teenager who's got some friends who have just become Christians, you ought to pray this for your Christian friends. 
because Paul prays in Ephesians 3, verses 14 through 21, the greatest prayer may be ever offered in the Bible, and it's all about people that they would grasp who Jesus is. And here's what Paul says as he transitions from theology and a knowledge of the Christian life to practical living in the Christian life. Paul says, for this reason, Ephesians 3, 14, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven on earth derives his name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ, you can translate the name Jesus there. Christ is his title, it means Messiah, but he's talking about the person of Jesus. So that Jesus may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all of the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, is the love of Jesus, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who's able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As Paul transitions from what you need to know to what you need to do, Paul said it's really not a what on either end, it's a who. And he said, my prayer for you is that you would somehow grasp how high the love of Jesus is, how wide the love of Jesus is, how deep the love of Jesus is. My prayer for you is that as you grasp who Jesus is and live for Jesus, that your knowledge of Jesus and your life with Jesus would allow you to accomplish things greater than you could even ask or imagine because of the connection that you have to Jesus. That's the way that the Ephesus church started out. That was doing church old school. But in Revelation chapter 2, we see the present state of the church in Ephesus, and it is not good. As a matter of fact, we see the present state of five churches, five real churches about 1,900 years ago. I believe five symbolic churches in the age that we live in where Jesus comes to these churches and says, listen, it's not going to work doing church that way to the church in Pergamum. Jesus said, you cannot have a church that has heresy in its teaching, that teaches things that are outside the Bible. You can't have a church full of people who want to live sinfully. He said, church doesn't work that way. To the church in Thyatira, he gave even a stronger warning because he said, your problem isn't heresy mixed with sin. Your problem is that you're teaching a heresy that says sin is not a big deal. And it's actually worse than, to, to, worse than learning the wrong things and living the long way, wrong way is to teach that living the wrong way doesn't really matter to God. He said there's churches like the church in Sardis that are just dying out and they're closing the doors. There's churches like the church in Laodicea that are lukewarm. They just, they've kind of lost their fervor for God. But in Revelation chapter 2, very specifically, he said there are churches like the church at Ephesus. And I believe if our church is being threatened by anything right now that Jesus would speak to, it would be what the church in Ephesus was threatened by. He said in verses 4 and 5, you have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen and repent and do the things that you did at first. Here's what Jesus said. If you read real carefully Revelation chapter 2, Jesus said some awesome things about the church at Ephesus. Here's what he said. Your teaching ministry is awesome. The sermons at your church, they're really good. I've, I've been sitting in your church and I've been listening to what's being said. Your teaching is right on. Your leadership is right on. Really good. Your work in the community, really good. Um, your endurance in the community, really, really good. If I would come to church on Sunday morning, it's great. If I would see how your church serves your community, it's great. But here was a message in Revelation chapter 2. The teaching and the ministry of the church at Ephesus, they were solid but they were unsustainable. 
They were solid, but they were unsustainable. You say, why is that? Because of this key thought. I've written this on your notes for you. The church at Ephesus went from doing church in a place of a continual focus on their direct connection to Jesus to doing ministry well with a solid understanding of Scripture but without their heart's primary connection being to Jesus. In the first generation, they couldn't escape Jesus because they were talking to his mom, because they were talking to one of his best friends, because they were talking to his personally called apostle to the Gentiles. In the first century, they couldn't escape Jesus. But as they got a few generations down the road, Jesus said, your church services look great, your impact in the community and in your world looks great, but it is not sustainable because the primary focus of your Christian life is no longer Jesus. They had lost sight of the person of Jesus and the, pers- and the purpose of their life as it related to Jesus. This couldn't have happened with Paul. It couldn't have happened with John. It couldn't have happened with Mary. Because they looked at them and they saw Jesus. But at some point, they got away from their primary motivation of spiritual service being what Jesus had done for them. And what Jesus said in Revelation 2.5 is the only proper motivation and sustainable purpose of ministry in a church is Jesus. If you were doing it for any other reason than Jesus, here's what Paul said. The light, or, or what Jesus said, the light's going to go out. You cannot sustain your flame for ministry if the source of that flame is anything other than Jesus. And what's really interesting is in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, turn it there if you don't have it. Paul said, here's what the church is supposed to look like. It's a beautiful picture of the church, to be honest with you. But it was a picture of people serving Jesus. In Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says, so Christ, again, we can insert Jesus. So Jesus himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God, that's Jesus, and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Jesus. Here's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 4, 11 through through 13. Paul said, when the purpose of our life becomes connected to the person of Jesus, let me say that again, when the purpose of our life in everything we do becomes connected with the person of Jesus, a beautiful picture of the church forms. And that picture is sustainable. It's people who realize they've been called by Jesus and gifted by Jesus to serve Jesus. And in the midst of doing that, they would end up serving other people, but they would never serve for the benefit of other people. They would serve for the benefit of Jesus on behalf of other people. So the primary motivation of service was always Jesus. And Paul said when people connect the purpose of their life, when they find out what they're good at, what they can do, what they have to offer, with the person of Jesus, what he would want us to do to serve one another and serve our community. Paul said the whole church grows up and the whole world is impacted spiritually. Paul said it's a place that looks like a place where everybody agrees to do something so that everybody all together can keep growing and maturing spiritually as the church grows and it impacts the world. But you need to understand this. This is only sustainable and fulfilling long-term if it's for Jesus. 
And in Revelation chapter 2, they had good church services and good ministry, but Jesus said, your light is going to go out because you have forgotten that it's about me. If you're here today, and you've got the ability to get out of bed and get to church and back, but not think about Jesus today and what he's done for you, that is not sustainable every Sunday morning of your life because you'll get busy, you'll get tired. You'll get bitter at other people who aren't serving as much as you are. But if it's for Jesus, if the motivation on Sunday morning when you hit the alarm clock is Jesus gave his life for me. My gosh, I owe him everything. And he wants 90 minutes of my morning on Sunday, maybe three hours so that I can come and serve, maybe five hours or six hours because I do set up and tear down a couple times a month. Man, for Jesus? What's five or six hours for Jesus? For the church, it's a lot. For Jesus, it's not much. Maybe you can come and you can set up chairs and you can tear down pipe and drape today. But you never, not once, think about Jesus. And how you're doing it for Jesus. Not for the people in the church, not for the people you serve, but you're doing it for Jesus. That's unsustainable. Now, setting up and tearing down chairs, setting up drape and folding it at the end, that's a very small thing to do for Jesus. But if it's not for Jesus, it can become a massive headache in your life. Maybe you help in the nursery. You try to teach three-year-olds about Jesus and keep them all from killing each other and eating things that they shouldn't eat back in the nursery. If that's not for Jesus, it's not sustainable. You're going to get bitter at the parents that come week after week and drop off their kids and never serve so that you can have a break. You'll think, I'm not going to serve them anymore. You're going to get tired of missing services and coming early and staying for two, two, two services. It's not sustainable. But if it's for Jesus... Well, gosh, we'd do anything for Jesus, right? Maybe you lead a children's small group or you went to a youth activity, but you don't do it for Jesus. Eventually, it's unsustainable. I mean, who wants to go to Worlds of Fun when it's 100 degrees and follow around a bunch of teenagers watching them ride rides that give us migraines and possibly cut our lifespan just a little bit just by existing in that place? And that's just me. That was just two weeks ago. For teens, can't do that long. But for Jesus, I mean, Jesus has done so much for me. I can do that to G for Jesus. If you sing in the choir or you play an instrument or you serve on a team, but it's not for Jesus, it's not sustainable. Other things are going to get in the way from your emotions to your ego to your schedule. But if it's for Jesus, it can take priority. Maybe you give in the offering but you never connect it to what Jesus has done for you. When times are hard, it's going to be hard to give in the offering. You might not give in the offering. But if it's for Jesus, gosh, what's 10% for Jesus? Like if Jesus showed up today and said, I need some money, like we'd give it all. Like if it was for Jesus, we'd give it all, right? So many times we exist in church without a mindset of Jesus. Maybe you serve in, in our community or you shake hands at the door. You do parking when it's too hot and it's too cold, when it's too wet, when it's too dry, when you have allergies. Maybe you set up signs before anybody gets here and you're here taking them down after everyone has left. But you do all that without ever thinking about Jesus. That is not sustainable. But if it's for Jesus, it's not a very big thing for Jesus. Even for me. If I get up week after week and I preach sermons for you, Rather than for Jesus, I will lose my motivation. There's not a person in our church worth 
preparing and preaching 52 sermons for every week. And there's not a pastor in the world worthy of your full attention 52 Sundays a year. But Jesus, if Jesus has called me to it, how do you say no to Jesus after everything he's done for us? You see, Jesus looked at the church in Ephesus. He said, your church looks good. Your church is doing good. But I can honestly tell you, I'm looking at people's hearts. This is what Jesus is saying. And somehow they've disconnected all their service from Jesus, and it is unsustainable. They're not going to make it. They are quickly burning out. Their light, he said, is just going to go out if they forget that it's for me. But if it's for Jesus, guess what? Jesus ain't going anywhere. And neither is the purpose and the power of his church if it's for Jesus. The reality is Jesus doesn't just want to be a catalyst for your faith steps. That's what Jesus often is. He inspires us to do things. But Jesus doesn't want to just be the catalyst for our faith steps. He wants to be your companion during your ministry. Jesus doesn't want to motivate you to wave at cars as they come in. He wants to stand by you and wave with you. Jesus doesn't want to motivate you to be a greeter. He wants to stand at the door with you and say hi to people as they come in. Jesus doesn't want to motivate you to wrap up cables and plug in sound. Jesus wants to get down on his hands and knees and do it with you. Jesus doesn't want to motivate you to help in the nursery. He wants to help with you. He doesn't just want to motivate you to serve students and teens. He wants to serve them with you. Jesus doesn't want to just motivate you to give in the offering. He wants to remind you that he gave everything. Jesus doesn't just want to like wind you up and set you loose. He wants to go on the journey with you and yet so many of us today we got out of bed we're going to come to church we're going to go home we're going to live our life and at no point will we stop and think it's all for jesus jesus told the church in ephesus you are going to burn out spiritually that way that's not how it works you can't do it for your pastor you can't do it for your ministry team leader You can't do it for the people you serve in the nursery with. You can't even do it for the kids that you lead. You can't do it for the people in our community that need to see a friendly face. You have to do it for Jesus. That's the only way it's worth doing your entire life. Now, you do it on behalf of all those people. But if the motivation is not Jesus, it's not going to work. But the good thing is, is Jesus is here. Hebrews 13, 8 said Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Hebrews 13, 5 says, never will I leave you and never will I forsake you. Jesus says you'll never have to do alone if you'll just wake up your eyes to see that I'm there. And he told the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, you've got you to get back to old school church. Two things. You've got to find your ministry purpose in God's church. Jesus said the purpose of the theology, the purpose of the knowledge, the purpose of your salvation, you have been saved unto good works. The purpose of Jesus in your life is to transform you so you can transform others. You've got to get engaged spiritually. But then number two, you've got to reconnect your ministry purpose to the person of Jesus. Because some of you are serving and working, thinking, when is anyone going to notice? The only one who matters notices every Sunday. The only one worth serving for the rest of your life notices every Sunday. And Ephesians says, if you can learn to connect to Jesus, the plans you have for yourself, Jesus is, they're bigger. The goals and visions you have for your life, if you'll stay connected to Jesus, his are bigger. The grandest things you think you could ever do for Jesus, if you'll connect to Jesus, there'll be more. Because if you could just comprehend the depth and the width, the height of God's love, Paul says, if I can just get you tied to Jesus and keep you there, 
your life will be changed forever. Romans 14, 8 says it this way. If we live, we live for Christ. If we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. It's the thought that if you live, you've got to live for Jesus. If you die, you're going to be with Jesus. But live or die. It's about Jesus. It's not about journey. It's not about Christian. It's not about Ryan or Scott. It's, it's not even about the little baby that you hold in ministry. It's not about them. It's about Jesus. And Jesus through you has tremendous impact on them. But it's about Jesus. In our fall small group semester just started last week. We're going through what we call a teaching on SHAPE. SHAPE is an acronym that stands for Spiritual Gifts, Heart, Ability, Personality, Experience. It basically is trying to help our people find what God has created you and gifted you to do in serving Jesus. You know what? All that information without correct inspiration and motivation means nothing. You can find out your shape and know exactly where you're supposed to serve. But if it's not for Jesus, who cares? Revelation 2 says it won't last. The candle goes out. But if it's about Jesus, we can change the world. So in Revelation 2, Jesus says you can't forget about me even while you're serving me. Or it doesn't last. So really there's two thoughts as we come to a close today in our invitation time. There's two groups of people mainly in this room that need to hear two messages today. The first is for those of you who exist in a church like the church in Ephesus. Your Christianity has somehow become detached from Jesus. Your serving has somehow become detached from the person of Jesus. Your giving has somehow become detached from the person of Jesus. Even your Christian activity has somehow become attached. It's become a habit in your life, but you never really stop and do it for Jesus. And because of that, maybe you're lukewarm or you're tired or you want to quit. Because you haven't thought Jesus has given me his everything and he deserves my all. You say, Christian, what happens if that's me? What happens if I'm a Christian who somehow has disconnected my Christian life from the primary motivation of Jesus. You have to repent. Jesus says you're in sin. I don't want to offend you, but I don't want to comfort you with false hope either. He says it's sin. To try to live the Christian life without caring about Jesus, that's the sin. It's missing the mark. You need to repent. What does that mean? You need to stop and say, Lord, I'm sorry. Somehow in the busyness of this church world, I have lost focus on Jesus. If they could do it in Ephesus where Jesus' mom went to church, they could definitely, it could definitely happen here. And if that's you, you need to repent. You need to say, Lord, forgive me. I confess. Somehow I've gotten sucked into ministry without my primary motivation being Jesus. And I'm sorry. And I realize this is unsustainable. Help me reconnect to my first love. And then for some of you, you are connected to Jesus, but not his purpose. For some reason or another, you've got this, this deep theological connection to Jesus. You're learning. You're growing. You really love Jesus. You think about Jesus. But you never do anything for him. You don't serve. You don't pour out. You're letting Jesus transform you, but not for the transformation of others. You're being selfish with what Jesus is calling you to do. Say, what do I do? Just get on board. Just say, Jesus, I realize the pinnacle of knowledge is serving others. On your behalf. So those are really the two things that I believe Jesus wants to speak into our church today. If you've disconnected your life from who Jesus is, repent. Get reconnected. 
if you somehow in your Christianity have not connected to the purpose of Jesus, get connected. Just figure out a way to step in and start going. But if we will be a church that keeps Jesus at the center of our motivation, Jesus ain't going nowhere, and neither is the purpose and power of his church. We will be a church that shows the love of Jesus and the hands of Jesus in our community in a major, major way. Let's pray together.